Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hi, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And I want to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of cultural engagement and uh, you're noticing that uh, to my right is someone that you see more often than I in this chair, which is our, my colleague Daryl Bach, who is the Executive Director for Cultural Engagement. And we're switching roles today. Daryl's going to be my subject expert. And today we are going to talk about money. We're not going to ask for money, but we're <laughs> going to talk about what does the Bible tell us about money. And let's start with uh, the fact that uh, a very oft-quoted, uh, we might say misquoted passage is in 1 Timothy, which many people believe says money is the root of all evil. Tell us more. Well, you better believe in love, because <laughs> <laughs> love's got a lot to do with it. The right. love of money is the root of all evil. So the, the point here is it's not money in and of itself is bad, but how we might handle it might do things to us that, uh, that aren't to our spiritual benefit and aren't to our personal benefit. So the warning is not about money per se, but about how we handle it and what it can do to us, particularly as it drives us in the direction of being more independent of God and being less dependent on Him. That's the danger, and Scripture has a lot to say about the love of money. Well, then let's stick with that concept of love for just a second, because love has this idea of desire and affection to it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing you sort of intimate is that uh, our desires, our affections can be turned in any number of directions, and money is one of the things that does that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It used to be in the works that used to deal with spiritual formation, what we might call discipleship or even uh, even our walk with God, uh, many centuries ago that some of the top titles dealing with that theme would talk about our affections and our affection towards God. And it really is about our, our love and our loyalty and our allegiance. That's part of what's being talked about. So the question becomes, uh, what are my – where are my allegiances? Where are my core allegiances? And and core allegiances are very, very important. There are very famous texts that say, you know, one can't serve two masters. One will love the other and hate the other, and that's a comparative use of those two terms. When push comes to shove, you're going to end up in the one column or the other. And so, uh, you know, you can't love God and mammon is the, is the way the t passage reads. And, of course, mammon is one of those words we use in everyday English all the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> what does it really mean? Yeah, it's about possessions. It's about it's about the variety of things that we can come in contact with, of which money is a part. And so the idea is, am I excessively tied in my affections to the material world and what it provides to me with a sense of independence from God, or is my loyalty to God? So affections is a very important term. The idea of love and allegiance is a very important term when thinking about how we go through our lives and what we ally ourselves to. Well, I, I kind of like to always start at the beginning, and if I go all the way back to Genesis, 
Um, you know, I see Adam and Eve there in the garden. I don't see any money. So where, where does this thing come from? That's a good question. You know, it used to be that people bartered uh, on the basis of the resources that they had vis-a-vis the resources that someone else could give them, and they'd negotiate out, out space. I, I, I think about this when I was a kid. You know, I might trade my candy for someone's baseball card or right. something like that. And, and so, you know, that was the old bartering system, and eventually it came to to be rooted in a in a monetary system. Now you need an economist here to talk about the history of the economy and where that came from. But eventually, this got uh, transferred monetized. into monetized uh, ways of dealing with wealth and resources and that kind of thing. And and then you know money came from there. So that by the time we're in really the Old Testament as well as the New, we're dealing with with economies that even though they're primarily agrarian in the way they're they're uh, dealing with things, and there's still a lot of bartering going on. Um, there also is a monetary support and coinage that comes with it, so that if you, for example, travel to Europe today, and you, particularly in Germany, I remember uh, going to one of the museums in Berlin, and you walk in, and the whole thing, the whole whole floor is dedicated to the history of coins, mm-hmm. and you walk through, and you go, you know, into the earliest coins that we've dug up through the Roman coins. You can see a denarius and some of the coins that we see mentioned in the Scripture all the way through up to uh, not just monetary coins but commemorative coins uh, through recent events. And you can actually walk through the history of nations Hmm. as a result of what's on the coins that people have minted at one point or another. Yeah, because all the rulers would put their inscription on the coins. Exactly right. They put their face on the coins. They put their inscription on the coin. On the back, they would sometimes put propaganda uh, to make a point. For, there's a very famous coin involving Israel when Israel was overrun in A.D. 70 that has uh, the picture of a Roman soldier standing over and lording over uh, an image of a female that's supposed to represent Judah. And, and, the, and the inscription says, Judah Capta, which means, you know, Judea captured. Hmm. And so um, it's, it's propaganda reminding people uh, we're in charge. And there's, of course, that very well-known uh, passage where uh, Jesus – gets asked about whether they should pay the Romans' taxes, and he mm-hmm. says, well, show me a coin. That's exactly right. Who, whose inscription is on it? Yeah, that's Caesar's. exactly right. Yeah, the Caesar's inscription on coin. Of course, the reason he's doing that is he's showing you're already, you're already committed to the monetary system that you're asking about here. You're already in this game. Uh, so, And then, of course, his reply is, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that passages invoked all kinds of discussion, but that's another podcast topic. Right. <laughs> well, help help us sort of um, lay, lay down a foundation here about the relative uh, good or not of, of money itself. I mean, should we think of it as a necessary evil? Should we think of it as a good category? Biblically speaking, what are we sort of instructed to do with the category of money? Well, you know, when you think about money in Scripture, you not only have to think about the passages that talk about money, but also talk about social status. So you're thinking about the rich and the poor and what Scripture has to say about that. And actually, in the Old Testament, there are many passages that affirm the blessedness of being rich, the the value of having money, the way in which the rich are in a position to help serve other people, that kind of thing with the resources that they have. 
in the Greco-Roman world, there's a whole structure of patronage that existed in which the wealthy actually served the benefit of the city um, and gave of their resources to make the city a better place to live. Now, that came oftentimes with a tagline attached to it of, you know, if I pay in and make the city better, then you better be sure you honor me back. It was almost, a, you know, I'll give a penny if you give a penny and praise back, that kind of thing. But it, but it still showed that people recognize that the possession of resources is something that can be utilized in terms of stewardship in a way that helps people, and that these uh, opportunities are seen as a blessing from God. They're a responsibility on the one hand, but they're also a means of blessing. And so, uh, particularly in Proverbs, there's a lot that's said that's positive about uh, about the way the rich uh, can handle their resources. But there also is the flip side, uh, which comes in a couple of forms. Uh, one is that the poor uh, are especially vulnerable, and so we should have concern for them and the way we reach out and engage with them, how we help them have a better standard of life than they might otherwise. There's also warnings to the poor about being lazy and handling that responsibly. So what we see are tensions, common tensions of what we see living in a fallen world in which people can take resources that God has given in, in, in the world and we can utilize them well or we can utilize them poorly. And depending on how we handle the material is really um, how we evaluate the spiritual content and value of what's taking place. So you're suggesting that uh, money is a bit like fire. It can be used for good mm -hmm. or for ill. And so that's now we're back to sort of where our affections lie and and who's the real god of our life. That's right. And and what we and and what and for whom uh, we use the resources that we have. You know, most people who gather money oftentimes will gather it for very uh, self-focused reasons, um, and some of them are, are well-intentioned. You know, I want to take care of my family. I want to be sure I have enough money to live on when I don't have a job anymore and I'm retired and can can function responsibly uh, after I I move past the point of earning a regular wage. You know, those are appropriate things to plan for. But then sometimes uh, the the examples aren't quite so positive. I I. I love to talk about – I love what people can sometimes do with commercials. Mm -hmm. In 30 seconds, you can tell a marvelous story that has all kinds of values wrapped up in it. And there's this wonderful commercial. It's probably now five, seven, eight years old. It's been a while, but it was for an insurance company. And the, the first uh, scene, it's 30 seconds divided up into three 10-second segments. I mean, just think about the creativity of what goes into this. Anyway, the first sentence is uh, um, your child is born. You know, you got a newborn in your arms and you're looking at the newborn. And the next scene that you see uh, and the intimations about you need to plan ahead for this child. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, I can't even do it in 30 seconds. <laughs> and then the second scene is a, is a, a letter to the daughter who's grown up, who's now about college age, she's getting ready to go into college, and she's been informed that she's won a scholarship. So all this money that you put aside for the scholarship for this girl is now freed up to be utilized in whatever way you want. The last scene that closes out the commercial is a is a is a sailboat sailing off into the sea, and the name of the sailboat is Our Daughter's College Education. <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, that probably isn't quite what we have in mind in terms of the use of resources. And so, but it it communicates values uh, that that sometimes come with the way we earn our money. So the issue is long answer, but uh, the issue is to say that what we do with our money 
money does matter. We, we, the resources that God gives us, at least when we view them through the spiritual lens, are resources to be utilized for how we can help steward the creation well, which does go back to Genesis 1. The original assignment we were given when we were made in God's image was to subdue the earth and to subdue it well, to take care of the garden would be the picture of the image. And, uh, and money is a very important feature in how that happens. Well, money is a, is a symbol, if you will, of value. And you mentioned the Genesis passage, and uh, inherent in that creation mandate is the idea that we as humans are to add value to the earth. In other words, the earth on its own is not fruitful at all. It, it simply provides raw resources, and it takes human beings to then add value to those resources to turn them into good services. And to handle the material creatively so that something's done. Someone has used the illustration, I may have even gotten this from you, it says, you know, uh, what does it take to have a car? Well, that that ore doesn't mine itself and turn into that wonderful vehicle. Someone's got to do something creatively with that material and mold and shape it to make it useful. And uh, that's part of what we're looking at. So it's so yes, the use of resources is very very important in how we and and how we creatively do it is very important in thinking about how we serve other people. But it 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 it, it does seem certainly here in the West and and certainly here in the United States, you know that that famous question, you know, how much money is enough? Mm-hmm. And the answer is just a little bit more. <laughs> you yeah. Know, wh- why yeah. why do we live that way? Why do we have that mindset? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what pulls us in that direction. Whether you know, I've got to be better than the Joneses, and so the more I have, the more status I have. Whether it's a status element that's tied to it, uh, is it is it an affirmation, a way of of being self affirming about the value of what I do? And so, you know, the higher up the ladder I go, the better that kind of thing. Um, you know, who knows who knows the depths of the variety of motivations that it can exist in the human heart. Uh, there there are lots of different reasons. Maybe it's to impress parents about, you know, uh, yeah, I really have made a success out of my life. Uh, You know, there are lots of reasons why people do it. And and you watch what happens in our world, particularly in the West and especially in the United States, where you see the the net worth of certain people in certain roles increasing percentage-wise exponentially against what's going on with the way the rest of the people work. And it and you do wonder, um, you know, if if our materialism tilt button has hit hit a certain level in terms of, uh, of what's uh, proper and best. But then the flip side of that is if people use those resources well and pour that back into the economy and actually use it to serve people, that doesn't become a negative thing. It becomes a catalyst. Uh, for other people to – and frees up other people to be able to uh, do what they have to do. It frees up opportunity for jobs and that kind of thing. So the entrepreneurial spirit is is not a detrimental one necessarily. Oh, not at all. You know, I, I, I've always seen the sort of core lie there in the garden that, that, that uh, Satan used to deceive Eve was basically that God is not good. You know, he's he's holding out on you. There's something more for you, mm-hmm. but he's not giving it to you. And it seems to me that that enters into this feeling that a lot of people have that, you know, I ought to have more than I have. Mm-hmm. It, and it's like God's holding out on me. You know, he's he's withholding some blessing from me that, that ought to be there. And somehow the money part says I can go get that which God is 
denying me. Yeah, I think there's another subtle thing that goes on here that the Scripture does spend a lot of time talking about that's related to what you're raising, and that's the idea of the more resources I have, the more control I am of the environment that I live in. You know, I get more control of my life. I have more freedom. I have more liberty. I, if, if I have a need, I can spend the money to make that happen, those kinds of things. And so what money can do – there are actually passages that address this very directly – what money can do is almost make us into little gods. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, the other lie in the garden isn't just whether God's withholding something or not, but what is he actually withholding? What he's withholding from you is the idea of you will become like him. Mm -hmm. And so in that in that exchange is is a very if i can say it this way delusional part of the control that we think we get when we have a wide array of resources in the kind of independence that it breeds a kind of entitlement that it sometimes breeds all of which cause us to think less about our neighbor and how we serve people next to us or it can and gets us to be too self-focused and the scripture is literally loaded with texts that take us in that direction and I would say, if, if it's not the critique of this area that Scripture offers, it's certainly one of them and one of the big ones. Well, you know, and you get into who, who's really in control, whether it's you're in control of money, the money's in control of you. I had a, a man in uh, Florida once who told me an amazing story. He was an entrepreneur, and he was – cashing out. He, he built his business up and he was selling it and he was going to make $20 million. And he met, he got a bunch of his buddies together uh, for breakfast to tell them about this good fortune. And of course, they all were like, hey, man, that's fantastic. And after, after they kind of got over that initial enthusiasm, the table went quiet. And they're all like looking down, you know, at their food. And he looks around and he says, guys, what's, what's wrong? What, what, what happened? One by one, they went around and they each told their story. And of the four men that were sitting there, they'd all done that same thing. They'd built a business and then sold it and cashed out and become, you know, as we would say, filthy rich. Every single one of them said that shortly after, you know, selling the business, they took their money and they'd blown a whole lot of money on a toy. Mm -hmm. All four of them were divorced. And he said, Bill, Basically, what they were articulating was that they were in a crisis of meaning. Hmm. And he went out and did a study, uh, and I think when I met him, he had interviewed something like 28 different men who had mm -hmm. gone through that exact same – and of the 28, the same pattern persisted. Uh, only two of them were still married. Hmm. And uh, he, it made him think twice about whether he wanted to sell his business. Hmm. And his summary comment, I've never forgotten, he said, Bill, the kind of person you are before you make the money is the kind of person you'll be after you make the money. Hmm. All the money does is it gives you the ability to live that out at a higher, more sophisticated level. Mm -hmm. So if you're greedy and selfish and arrogant before you make the money, the money's just going to give you the ability to be greedy, selfish, and arrogant mm -hmm. at a much higher level. Yeah. And I, I've seen that in my own experience of people and how that works. You know, there's, uh, there's a text that does this very, very uh, vividly in Luke chapter 12, and it is the parable of the rich fool. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing about the parable is, and I tell people, 
you know, if I mention the word grammar, you're going to get nervous because some of you remember junior high. It will make you very, very uncomfortable. But sometimes grammar does matter. And there's, there's a first-person singular pronoun that gets used or a variation of it gets used multiple times in the space of a few verses. Uh, I, I happen to have the, the text here. Just, just listen to how often um, – how often this comes up. So this is the guy, of course, who gets the marvelous crop, and he's got more than he knows what to do with. And so it says, Jesus, this is uh, Luke 12, 16, he then told him a parable, the land of a certain rich man produced an abundant crop. So he thought to himself, now here we go, what should I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones there. I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to myself, you, still talking about himself, have plenty of goods stored up for many years, relax, eat, and celebrate. And so, you know, 11 times in the space of basically three verses. <laughs> kind of tells it's you everything I, you need I, to know. I, me, me. You know, exactly. if you had a passage that's all about me, this is it. He's self-focused. It's everything is his. He's earned it the old-fashioned way, and no one's going to take it from him. And then, of course, the way the parable ends is, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded back from you. Who will give – who will get what you have prepared for yourself? That's a good question. Of course, the answer is he's not getting it. Hmm. He can't take it with him. So it is for the one who stores up riches for himself and is not rich towards God. The person who stores up riches for himself ends up with nothing. All right. And uh, and so here's this passage that talks about the danger of being uh, – of this false sense of self-control. I now control my world. And and when you do that, it's like building up a wall around yourself that, that isolates you from everything else that's going on around you and everyone else is going around you if you're not careful. And that's the danger Scripture sees as being very prevalent in, in, in a love of money that's dangerous. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. How is it that in Luke there seems to be more said about money than any of the other Gospels? I mean, was Luke? I mean, Luke was a doctor. What did mm -hmm. he know about money? Well, I think that what you see actually in Luke, Luke tends to give us more teaching than any of the other gospels do. About fifty percent of Luke is unique to Luke, and we don't have it anywhere else in, in the gospels. And a lot of that is the parabolic material. We have several parables that we would we wouldn't even know about if we didn't have Luke. And then within those, several of them deal with issues of ethics, not just money, but although money is a predominant thing that he does talk about.
about. But really, issues of ethics, how I live, is very, very important to Luke. So you're seeing someone who's asking, how does this, what is this theology that I believe and hold, what does it actually look like in everyday life? And he, he'd applied to the Hendricks Center if he could have, if he was, was alive say, today. <laughs> so you're implying that theology actually applies to everyday exactly life? Exactly right. Yeah, we're probably theology and life together. We try and put those two things together and show that theology is relevant. And certainly, how we handle our money is one of the most relevant values we can wrestle with in life. And, and that's, that's what you're seeing in Luke is a concern that the things that get in the way of discipleship um, be pointed out. So, for example, if you go to the passage of the, uh, of the parable of the good soil or the, or the soils, um, what's often called the parable of the seed, you get four obstacles to good – well, three obstacles to good discipleship and then one soil that's in good shape. And those obstacles are Satan directly. He comes and, and picks the Steals. seed up before right. they even has a chance. Then you've got uh, persecution that steps in the way. And third is what are called the worries and cares of life, and, and, and Luke rolls money and concern of possessions into that, mm. into that world. So that's a theology that really he is articulating through, uh, through the volumes as he's preparing the disciples for what they're going to face. Uh, they're they're going to obviously face satanic challenge. They're pushing against the ways of the world. They're obviously going to face persecution in the midst of that. They're going to be rejected for that. And then, because of that pressure, because of that isolation that it can create, they're going to have a sense of needing, to at least potentially, to be concerned about you know how they how they're going to survive in a world that is pushing back against them. And so, those three. Uh, obstacles are part of what that parable is designed to say, and of course the flip side is the, the good soil is the one that receives the Word of God with patience and with endurance, trusts in what it has to say, embraces the, the way of life that's represented, and then that's the, that's the soil that yields the fruit. So, um, you know, it's almost like baseball, you know, you, you bat 250. <laughs> and, and so um, so in that sense, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a challenge, and Luke stays focused on what can get in the way, but he also fortunately also provides some examples about people who have negotiated that space successfully. Well, beginning right at the beginning of the, of the story where you have the three uh, – I guess we don't know if there's three – but you have the wise men, mm -hmm. the magi, mm -hmm. who come and bring what sound like pretty expensive gifts to – obviously they were people of means. Right. And they bring these gifts to the Christ child. That's right. We're in the beginning of Matthew and we're dealing with these people. And not only have they brought expensive gifts, they've come a long way. Yeah. They, they, they have journeyed from what in effect is Babylon, the heart of the Middle East, if you want to think of it that way, if you move you know, further east of Israel and they've come you know, by camel. You don't fly then. Right. Uh, no Dubai Airlines. And, uh, and so one step at a time, they make their way into the Holy Land and try and find the child and they lay these gifts of, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh in front of the child, which is a, a use of resources to honor God and to show their honor and respect for what it is that God has done. That certainly is an initial example in Matthew of someone who is using their resources in a way that is uh, praiseworthy and, and that attempts to lift up God. Well, you're correct. That, that is from Matthew. In, in, in Luke, you know, we have interesting money ties in with the birth of Christ and that it, it's during a, a, the census, mm -hmm. but that was really a a taxation structure. Everybody goes to their hometown, and mm -hmm. they get assessed their taxes based on their marital status, That's and right. 
other factors. Yeah, in fact, one of the things that you're seeing in the early part of Luke is that Jesus comes out of parents who are rooted in, in Jewish piety. You know, mm-hmm. you might think, well, he's a rebel. He must have had rebels as parents. No, mm-hmm. what you've got is a rebel whose parents were very law-abiding, very faithful. They, they took part in the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which was a three-day trek to get from where they were in Nazareth down to Jerusalem uh, to at least once a year go down, which was the common sign of piety at the time, and participate in the, in the Passover feasts or feasts like that. That's the way his parents are portrayed, except in this particular case they go down, of course, because of the census. But they're Clearly, we're used to the journey when we get later on in Jesus' ministry. We see them going down to celebrate the feasts and the festivals, that kind of thing, and the expectation is they would make it. So so you've got a very pious Jesus who's, who's living in the midst of the world. His, his parents are obeying uh, the call of the census to go down to their homeland to register, and, and Jesus is very much engaged as a, as a common citizen, if I can say it that way, um, in the life that he's going to lead because his parents are being good citizens. And that, lo and behold, they show up at the temple after he's born uh, in conjunction with the law to offer the appropriate sacrifices for the firstborn. And we're off and running. In our last podcast, you gave the parable of the uh, the rich fool. Mm-hmm. You know, let me build up barns and mm-hmm. store up all this stuff that I have created and so forth. Uh, are there some positive stories in the in the gospels of rich people? Yeah, there are two particularly positive stories. One is Zacchaeus of a, if I can say, it, of a wealthy tax collector. Bad who goes good, uh, and in chapter nineteen of Luke, we are uh, of course it's the famous story of Jesus coming through and Zacchaeus being you know a wee little man. I wonder where he said yeah, I think right. of that little song I used to learn when I was young, um, and uh, and so you know he climbs up in the tree and Jesus says I have to visit your house and then he says this and and this is something that someone might have a tendency to move past pretty quickly if they don't know the background. Um, And so in verse uh, 5 it says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down quickly, because I must stay at your house today. So he came down quickly and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And when the people saw it, they all complained. You can – this is a a word that sounds like what it is in Greek. It kind of has a feel to it. And he has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And when you read that, you got to read it right. That's sinner. You don't just say sinner. That's boring. And then, but Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions I now give to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone of anything, I am paying back four times as much. And what you may not realize when Zacchaeus says that is, is that he has taken on to himself the maximum penalty of the law for defrauding someone. Hmm. So um, when he says he's going to pay back four times, that's the full fine. Uh, and so what it indicates is is that in his encounter with Jesus, his approach to his wealth, which he has garnered – tax collectors had a reputation for taking a, a large cut off the top, if you will, that was, wasn't necessarily necessary. It was an interesting system because you bid for the right to taxes, which said, this is how much I'm going to collect and give back to the state, but then you could extract more than what you had 
you know signed on to give back and and you could take you know you could take a pretty healthy commission off of that in yep. effect and so that's what he's ha- had done and be, and he was a chief tax collector which means he was good at it <laughs> and uh, and in the midst of it uh, then uh, he turns around and he, he takes this completely different approach so Jesus turns around and says it's to him it's a true repentance it, it? absolutely it's a true repentance and so Jesus said to him today salvation has come to this household because he too is the son of Abraham for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And, and so Zacchaeus becomes an example of the very type of person Jesus encounters, and through the encounter of grace comes the change in the way their values operate, et cetera, and there's a change. It's, it's depicted obviously very instantaneously here, but that's it's kind of a parable of what the ministry of Jesus is about. Well, it reminds me of the passage in uh, Ephesians where Paul says, let him who steals, steal no longer, mm-hmm. but let him work with his hands that he may earn what he needs to earn so that he might have something to share with him who has need. Yeah. And so somebody goes from being a thief, a crook, mm-hmm. a fraud, mm-hmm. to actually you know, an honest worker, but also then a philanthropist. Yeah. It's a complete 180. It's interesting that in Judaism there's a really high value that was placed, and this comes out of the Old Testament, um, a real high value placed on giving alms, Mm -hmm. on caring for people who are vulnerable, on reaching out to people who struggle for one reason or another to be able to care for themselves. You know, this is the orphan, the widow, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, the poor. Uh, This is something that's highlighted in the Old Testament. It has fed into a sociology in Judaism where where Jewish people are actually known in many cases for having this impulse for almsgiving and and to take some of their wealth and and give it to other people. And so um, you're seeing that uh, reflected here. Now that's the first example. The second example that we're thinking of is Barnabas. In, in Acts, okay. who is known as a wealthy person, but he gives of his resources to help the early church uh, launch its ministry, et cetera, and he's known for being the encourager. You know, he, he's known as someone who engages on the outside. There's, a, there's another core ethical value that shows itself through Luke that's actually pretty interesting in the way it works. It actually goes back to a passage in Luke chapter 1 where uh, John the Baptist is described as someone who's going to come and turn Israel back to her God. That's Luke mm-hmm. one sixteen. But in Luke one seventeen, it continues and it says, and he's going to turn the fathers back to the children and the disobedient back, in effect, to the obedient. And, 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 and the value that Luke is communicating is that with repentance, with a genuine response to God, comes a different way of interacting with the people who you live next to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in Luke chapter 3, another passage unique to Luke, where t- he's giving unique teaching and he's elaborating on the ministry of John the Baptist. People come forward and they say, you know, John has issued this call, you know, uh, you brood of vipers, you know, right. who, who, who told you to fled the judgment that is to come, you know, work, work the fruit of repentance. Literally, literally, if you were to ta- uh, translate it very literally out of Greek, it would be make fruit of repentance, hmm. okay? And in English, this doesn't work because in English, our response is, well, then what should we do, okay? Right. But again, if you were literally to – it's the same verb in Greek. So what shall we make? You know, what should be our response? And there are, there are three sets of questions. Uh, what do we have to do to do repentance? And normally when you think of repentance, you think, 
Repentance has to do with my relationship to God. Right. So what I'm supposed to do, obviously, I must have to worship different or bring the right sacrifices. That's what you might think the answer would be. But in every case, in all three cases, the response has to do with how you treat other people. So repentance is now demonstrated through your work, so through, through your work, through what you do, through what, through how you interact. So, you know, one of them, you know, if someone lacks a shirt, you give them your tunic. Uh, for the soldier, you don't, uh, you don't abuse your power, right. and you're content with your wage. And so, so the. So the, the point is, and it actually if you think about it, it's the ethical core of the Bible. If you think about the Ten Commandments, one table deals with your relationship with God. What does the second half deal with? How you're relating to others. You know, you're not supposed to covet, you're not supposed to steal, et cetera. So, and, and then boil it down even more, okay? Let's get down to the soundbite level. The soundbite level is love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, all the law is contained. Mm. It's the same – I call it the ethical triangle. The way in which I relate to God then translates into the way I'm relating to others. And I've, and I've got three sets, of, th- three sets of things that I'm dealing with, my relationship to God, me, and how I'm relating to others. They're all three on the table when this is happening. And that's what you're seeing with Barnabas. Barnabas is someone whose relationship with God has driven him to steward his resources in such a way that his neighbor is impacted positively and and flourishing as a result uh, of the way he uses resources, not for himself, but for others. Well, I think this is extremely instructive for people that live in our culture because one of the things you're saying here is this is not a case of, oh, so if I just write enough checks and give them to charity, I'm, I'm, I'm in good with God, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's, no, we're, you're right. We're, we're talking about how I actually engage with people so that I give not just of my resources, although that's one way to do it, but also in some cases I may be giving my time or the way in which I care. There's a negative parable in Luke that actually walks into that space. It's the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, and there's an element of the rich man and Lazarus parable that we miss. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think it's about the punchline at the end, which is, you know, if someone goes to them from the dead, then, uh, you know, they'll believe. And, the, and of course, the response is, well, they have Moses in the law, let them read him. And say, no, if someone goes from the dead, they'll believe and say, no, if they don't believe the scripture, then they won't go. And so people think it's about the afterlife. Now, there is an afterlife dimension of this parable, it's, it is part of the point. But what got the rich man into trouble? Why was the rich man? Why was the rich man in that very warm, uncomfortable place long term? You know, why right. did he go down? And and the feature of this parable that's really fascinating is the only parable where a character is named. Hmm. Okay, there's no other parable where the character in the parable has a name, and it has na- he has a name for a reason. When the little examination takes place between Abraham and the rich man, because the rich man has said, send Lazarus so he can dip his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, because it's a little hot here, and carrier air conditioning apparently doesn't work down here. You know, <laughs> They don't right. deliver. That's right. I would retell this story. You know, There's a holy internet thing yes, going on right. and the communication between heaven and hell. That doesn't really happen. That's part of what shows you it's a parable. But anyway, so you've got this exchange going on, and, and the very fact that he knows who Lazarus is been sitting out his gate day after day while he was eating sumptuously. All he wanted was the crumbs off the table, and he never did anything for him. Hmm. He and knew enough about him to know he, his name. He knew enough that, about him to know his name. That's all he knew. And he didn't, and he didn't lift a finger right. to help him, and it wasn't going to be a stretch for him to be able to help the guy. 
And so, so all that is in play. When it says read Moses and the prophets, it isn't just reading Moses and the prophets for the Christology and hope, but it had to do with the ethic of the way you're relating to your neighbor that also was being – go tell my brothers. You know, when he realizes he – go tell my brothers so they will avoid the fate that I found myself in. Right. What is he going to tell them? You know, he's going to tell them, uh, show a little more concern and compassion for your neighbor. That is in a chapter, chapter 16 of Luke, that's all about money. In the middle part of the chapter, it says it's about money. Well, so what, what you're getting at is a theme that we've surfaced several times in, in, in these podcasts on money, which is about the heart. It's about a transformed heart. Mm-hmm. And that the money then becomes a means of expressing what your transformed heart is all about. It's not – what we're not saying is – Oh, well, because money is such a problematic thing, you should renounce it and take a vow of poverty and that'll that'll change everything. Mm-hmm. No, we're we're actually saying it's a resource. The question is how are you going to use the resources? Are you going to use it for yourself? Is it a self-focused resource or is right. it a resource that I give? I like to say the resources that God gives us are ours to steward. If they're for ours to steward, we ha- hold them with open hands. Right. You know, we don't hold them to say this is mine, I earned it, this is what I have to have and and and, and you know, and the more the merrier. No, it's a resource that I use that is one of the ways God can call me to serve as I am an example to the people around me of what it is God has done with my own life. God's been generous with his resources on our behalf, and we should be generous with the resources that God gives us on behalf of others as well. Well, as I've mentioned, we, we, you and I, live in a culture here in the United States that's a democratic capitalist society. I just I couldn't even begin to think how many millions of people in our economy on a daily basis they work with money mm-hmm. in finance, in investment, in accounting, in banking. Okay, mm-hmm. how is it that we have so little of what we might call a theology of finance and accounting? Like I I don't think most people who work in those fields have ever heard a any certainly not a robust presentation on here's what God has to say about money. It's a good question, and it's like it's like it's a neglected area, just like the area of work often is neglected, and uh, and, and I think it, it you know it's because the because the, the the main message that they have is from the church seems to be you know what you're into is kind of a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. But it is an evil, yeah. You know, and and you're kind of at the low end of the pecking order because you have to work in banking, finance, accounting, etc. Right, and and of course the point is is that it's a resource that can be used for positive or negative ends depending on how it's utilized. You know, there's a wonderful text. Uh, in fact, I tell people if there's one text that you need to know about on money, it's in First Timothy six. It comes in two hmm. separate parts, uh, one early on in the chapter and one later, and I. I there's no better advice to give for this text uh, than than what we're uh, what this passage has to offer us. So let me just let me just take a, a shot at, at reading this. Uh, it says um, it says. 
Um, for now, godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. For we've brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take a single thing out either. That's First uh, Timothy six seven. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. How many people like that as their standard <laughs> of living? And then it goes. But those who long to be rich, however, stumble into temptation, a trap, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. That's of course where we started. Some people in Reaching for it, have strayed from the faith and stag- stabbed themselves with many pains. That's kind of an echo of the mm-hmm. parable that Jesus told. And then later on, it says this. Okay, so that's the negative part. Well, what do you say to the rich person? This is six seventeen. Command those who are rich in these in this world's goods not to be haughty or set their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Okay, what am I supposed to do? Verse eighteen. Tell them to do good. But to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others, in this way they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future, and so lay hold of what is truly life. That life is defined when I actually live out what God has called me to do and to be, which is to subdue the earth and to care for my neighbor. And when I use my resources that way, I'm actually connecting with the way God designed me to live. And that's a very that can be a very, very satisfying part of life. I know lots of wealthy people who have a lot of money, who give a lot of money regularly, and they say, I love doing this. This is this is what I was made for. My ability to be able to impact people's lives in a positive way by the way I use my resources. I think God is in the middle of all that, and I couldn't do anything that's more joyful. Well, when when and and I should say if you know in God's providence He He blesses us with resources, and uh, that's most of us listening to this podcast. Uh, whether it's a whole lot of resources or just a little bit of resources on a global standard, where most of us are rich who live in the West. But it's saying we uh, we have an, a responsibility with that uh, that the wealth, the, the riches that God has put in our control, and uh, the responsibility begins. What I'm hearing Scripture teaching us is it begins in our hearts. We have a responsibility first and foremost to get ourselves aligned in love with God, mm-hmm. because as we do that. Then, uh, when we use those resources, the way we steward those resources, uh, we have an opportunity uh, to to do real good in the world by His providence. That's true, and we don't have to give a lot of money for that to be true. You know, the little widow who gave her might. Right. You know, she she gave more than all. Yeah. And so it wasn't the amount of money that she gave; it was the heart she gave it with that really counted. So, where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.